everybody. How we all doing? I'm Michael. I'm joined by Alex, as always. How's it going? And this is Falling Through Plot Holes, a podcast about video game plot lines and how they have a tendency to fall off the rails. And we're back from our Christmas break. Yeah. I hope you all had a good Christmas, getting presents, trying not to freeze to death if you're in the three-fourths of the country where um, <laughs> you nearly froze to death. I was. I was, too. It was weird. Yeah. Yeah, that was the time. 13 degrees in Texas is not... Uh, no. Texas is not meant to handle that? No. So, yeah, that was fun. Although it, it sounds died. like their power stood on uh, more this time. Yeah, yeah, the power grid was fine because it did not snow. So it worked out fine in that, in that regard. So, hey, that's cool. Yeah, great. Progress? Yeah, progress. Good on you, Texas. You, you did something right for a change. Ah, but yeah, uh, speaking of things uh, that are, you know, going right for a change, uh, this is a bad transition. <laughs> I'm just going to, you know what, Alex, I'm just going to ask you a question. Yeah, go for it. Uh, how do you feel about schools? Oh, that's if, a loaded question. Okay, how do you feel about, like, boarding schools? Oh, that's a loaded question. <laughs> um, I, I'm not sure. I guess I don't really have a strong opinion. Opinion. I'm not entirely sure what function they serve at this point. I really, I think when people think of traditional boarding schools, they think of the like the ones from like Dickensian novels, right? Like, you know, the ones that are like up in like England that still actually exist and produce most of the prime ministers of that country. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, yeah, I know, right? It's going great for them. Mm -hmm. Uh. I guess maybe to narrow it down further, what do you think about boarding schools and video games? Uh, it's a really good place to ha to find, like, either psychic children or ancient otherworldly monstrosities. Yeah, that's usually how that works out. I, I personally find it a very fascinating setting. Hmm. I, I think uh, there's a lot of, like, potential that goes into that, and I think there's a, there's a lot of really cool, like, set design that you could do with that mm -hmm. uh, you know you can have your main character meet you know you know fun little like fun little friends and you can go on adventures and whatnot and yeah primordial horror will like kind of like prop up especially if that game's a jrpg yeah turns out yeah and we're gonna be talking about a jrpg today alex oh boy Mm-hmm. only we're gonna be probably talking about one that uh i think with this setup people aren't expecting because they're probably expecting me to say persona right oh yeah Oh, yeah, no, we, we ain't talking about that. We're talking about the OG boarding school game that technically came out, I think, a year after the original Persona. Uh, we're talking about Final Fantasy VIII. I, I was <laughs> racking my brain trying to figure out what could you possibly be talking about because <laughs> boarding school and mercenary training camp are like wildly different categories in my mind. To be fair, Balam Garden is both. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, oh, <laughs> they take in children as young as five, canonically as mm -hmm. young as five, and are like, "Listen, buddy, we're gonna train you one day so you can kill my wife." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. Nope. That's. Mm -hmm. Yep. Oh my oh. god. Oh man, I'm. Oh, I'm excited. Oh, Fall Fantasy Eight, such a trip. Oh, I love the hell out of Final Fantasy VIII, Alex. You at home, if you're going, wow, this premise sounds kind of messed up. This is like the baseline of Final Fantasy VIII. It goes oh. places from here. <laughs> it falls off a cliff within the first two hours. <laughs> oh, my God. I, so it sounds like you're a fan of Final Fantasy VIII, Alex. I've never played it, but I've been told the general gist of what happens in it. Oh, my God. You are missing maybe the best worst final fantasy game and i i have seen cutscenes with no context and gone what the hell is that <laughs> what is that oh my god what could that possibly be <laughs> yeah it's it is a game that is totally totally all over the place um it is a game that has plot twists that just come out of left field and are, are just dropped like a sack of rocks mm -hmm. uh, it has a cast of characters that range from unlikable to you just actively hope they die within the first few <laughs> seconds you beat them. Every 
everyone is terrible. Everyone is a complete screw up. And oh. Mike, the combat in that game is completely broken. It actively penalizes you for engaging with it. It can be broken within the first hour of the game via mm -hmm. cards by playing a card game of all things. And I absolutely love it. It is definitely a game that is not the sum of its whole parts, but boy, are those parts really fascinating to me. They are wild. I My other experience is watching my third year apartment mate in college playing mm -hmm. it, like just off to the side. And I would mm -hmm. occasionally glance at it and go, what is happening? Why are you just fishing cards? <laughs> So that made my girlfriend got that experience while uh -huh. on the on the airplane because it, it turns out I could run that game on my laptop and it doesn't instantly drain the battery. Okay, makes sense. And, it, and I basically spent an hour just farming cards. <laughs> and she's like, "What's what is this game about? Is this a trading card game?" It's like, "Oh no, let me so let me explain the plot to you." She's like, "Well, you're playing cards." It's like, "No, that's yeah, that's half the game, man." Yep, yep. <laughs> I gotta refine these cards so I can get all the, these strength ups so I can just then, like, not actually engage with the combat at all. It's wonderful. So, yeah, Final Fantasy VIII is... Oh, it, it, I, there's only so many superlatives I can say. It is yeah. a weird, weird game. And it is a very odd game in the sense that it is maybe one of the more forgotten Final Fantasy games. Mm -hmm. And maybe for a long time it was one that's most reviled, too. Mm-hmm. I've never seen a game come out to such fanfare that within a couple of years, everybody hated it. Uh -huh. And now, as of, I'd say, past couple of years, it, like, the opinion has like slowly turned around. And I think people like this game again. I think so, yeah. That's been yeah. sort of my read on it. Yeah, and I, I think part of that also is because it's from the Golden Age of Square, uh, mm -hmm. that good 90s period. I mean, it came out December, uh, September 1999 in North America. Right. I mean, yeah, like, regardless on any given entry... The span of Final Fantasy 6 through 10 is, mm -hmm. like, just incredible. One could even say, like, 4 through 10. Yeah, I would, I would argue 4 through 10, certainly. Yeah. Yeah, it is a really, really strong. And given that, you know, after this, like, you're going to get games like Final Fantasy 13. Yeah. A lot of things are going to look very favorable when you compare it to games like that. Yeah, if you thought Squall was bad, wait till you meet Lightning. Woo! Lightning! You don't my... know what unlikable is. Oh, man. It's really funny because lightning is like... My read is that lightning is incredibly unpopular in the Western world. Mm -hmm. In Japan, she is one of the most popular characters in, in the Final Fantasy series. They're wrong for that. They are so wrong. <laughs> I think she is regularly top three. It's crazy. It's insane. She's an actively terrible person. She... <laughs> Speaking of, yeah, it's another game where everybody in, in that, oh, every, it's, it's every character is like it's just the, the absolute worst, except oh. for the single dad. Yeah. <laughs> the one character they proceed to do nothing with. Mm-hmm. Oh, but yeah, Final Fantasy VIII. It, the development of this game, Alex, as you could probably imagine, is absolutely wild. And I, I think for this first episode, we're going to go ahead and dive into that because, mm -hmm. oh boy, unsurprisingly yeah let's game... let's talk about the follow-up to final fantasy 7 yeah yeah the the big shoes that they had to fill with that and uh the you probably will be shocked about this kind of messed up development cycle that they had with this game mm. Alex, on mm. september 9th 1999 final fantasy 8 the follow-up to the system selling and genre changing final fantasy 7 released in north america to sell reviews uh Electronic Gaming Monthly gave it an average of, I believe, a 9.5. Mm. Uh, it had an overall Metacritic of 90%, which is technically uh, the worst of the PlayStation Final Fantasies, but still, 90% is 90%. You can't right. see yep. that. Uh, it had already been out in Japan since February of that year, and like over in Japan, it was a hit before it even hit, like, got on store shelves. Mm. Like, 2 million copies were pre-ordered in Japan Damn. alone. Wow. Yeah. Like, that's completely crazy. And United States, it was no different. While we don't have, like, exact sales figures for North America, uh, it was the top-selling game in the United States for three weeks straight. Mm. Uh, and apparently in 1990, 1999 alone, Square would earn $228 million in sales. 1999 money, mind you. Right. Me. Like, that is insane. Yeah, it's not and, bad for a franchise they were ready to just leave up by the side of the road. Yeah, right. And so 
like incredibly well sold over 8 million copies over the course of its lifespan uh, that lifespan being lifespan on the PlayStation mind you mm. that's not including like re-releases on the PlayStation 3 uh, the most recent Final Fantasy 8 remaster that came out in 2019 stuff mm-hmm. like that uh, it was by all accounts a bonafide success another what would become a nearly decade long stretch of a critical acclaim and dominance by a company that at one point was on the verge of bankruptcy in the 80s mm-hmm. but shortly after Final Fantasy 8 came out and players played and beat the game, the opinion started to change. Many began to see Final Fantasy VIII as perhaps not necessarily a good or bad game, but rather a disappointing one. Hmm. Many, And that's because many gamers got first introduced through Final Fantasy VII. Right. And found this game, while clearly influenced by its bigger brother, had far less in common than fans, such as a 12-year-old set myself, mm-hmm. uh, would have liked. Like, where was Cloud, Tifa, and Aerith? And why right. should we care about Squall, Selfie, and Renoa? That and second coming, question is still slightly valid, but anyway. It, it kind of is. I would go to bat for Squall. Yeah. The rest, yeah, the rest can go into, a, into the trash. But um, in the coming years, and as Square faced increasing challenges to his business, Final Fantasy VIII became, if not hated, then disliked. And when Final Fantasy X came and put Square back on top, kind of just forgotten. Mm. Nowadays, its reputation is slowly being rehabilitated, with a focus on just how unique of an entry it was in such a storied series. Mm. And Alex, that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about why this kind of came about as we talk about the development and plot of Final Fantasy VIII. Final Fantasy VIII is an odd game, Alex, in almost every sense of the world. Yes. Not only was it quite different in terms of like tone and story content, mm-hmm. uh, but it was different when it came to its gameplay and visual presentation. Like it is such a clean break from Final Fantasy VII in so many ways. Yeah, that I think, I, I think some people maybe don't really quite realize. Mm-hmm. It's a game that, while it was clearly influenced by previous entries in the series, it really seemed like it wanted to separate itself from the baggage and legacy of what Final Fantasy was up to this point. And in order to demonstrate this, we have to talk about the giant eclipse-causing meteor in a room. And that's Final (laughs) Fantasy VII. Yeah. Which, somewhat ironically, was also kind of a massive departure from what Final Fantasy was. Oh, it certainly was. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Everything from, like, your party size to its graphical presentation and whatnot. Yeah. Absolutely. Like, it still had a few things that were... um, were uncommon with the old with the old style but like right. yeah taking place in this like diesel punk world and whatnot it was it was still quite different mm-hmm. so final fantasy 7 released in 1997 was one of the most influential games of all time i, I think we don't need to go more yeah, into that no that's clear and thoroughly documented yep on this on this podcast yep. even uh yeah, released for the Sony PlayStation console, legitimate system seller with its 3D graphics and full motion cutscenes, completely wowed customers, set a new standard of what role-playing game could be, but also what the future of video games could be. Like, this more cinematic sort of look at uh, what uh, what gaming could be that could absolutely dazzle a player. And it should come as no surprise that with this massive success, any subsequent follow-up to Final Fantasy VII was going to have some big shoes to fill. And for Square, this presented a weird problem that not many other series had. Their games traditionally are only direct sequels in terms of gameplay, mm-hmm. not story. But we talked a little about this a little bit in our, um, I believe, not only our Final Fantasy VII podcast series, but our Final Fantasy X podcast series. Mm-hmm. Uh, up until this point, there was never a direct sequel to any right. of these games. The exception being Final Fantasy V had the original video animation uh, that was done for it. Mm which uh, was took place a thousand years in the future and might as well had nothing to do. (laughs) So because of that, like when you have like a game that is going to absolutely reset the table of what like is expected from the final fantasy series and bring in a bunch of new people, they're going to get a little confused when the next game has very little to do with it. Like once again, like to get into this final fantasy seven itself was its own bespoke game. Right. It didn't feature the continuing adventures of Locke and Terra from Final Fantasy VI, but rather focused on the adventures of Cloud, Tifa, among others. Uh, like it might as well, like story and setting wise, been entire part of an entirely different series. Right, but because so many U.S. players were new to the series, they didn't really realize that. They did not. Like this is not to say that Final Fantasy IV and Final Fantasy VI, both games that came out in North America 
weren't necessarily successful in their own right, they were still niche. Right. So for Japanese gamers, though, where this is, this series has been huge already, mm-hmm. they've had seven games following this pattern. This right. wasn't a huge issue, and as we've already alluded to, international audiences didn't quite have that same expectation. Right. Also, Final Fantasy VII was our fourth Final Fantasy. Yeah. Yeah, due to weirdness of not localizing certain games. Um, yeah. Starting with the original Final Fantasy actually being published by Nintendo in 1990. Mm. Well, after, like, I believe the second and I think third game had already been out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, kind of messed things up a little bit. Right. Now, Square would eventually come up with an answer to this problem by making direct sequels to individual Final Fantasy games in 2003. <laughs> <laughs> in the meantime, for Final Fantasy VIII, they're going to keep going with the tradition and have the games be separate from previous series. In fact, this game is going to be a huge departure from what Final Fantasy was mm-hmm. in terms of gameplay and story structure, kind of what we've already touched upon. And I'm going to kind of try to make the argument as we go through this episode as to why that is. Mm-hmm. Now, that being said, it would be silly to say that it throws everything away and completely starts anew. Right. Someone at Square clearly saw how successful Final Fantasy VII was, and even though some elements of the game's design reject what was present in the previous game, there's still some heavy influences throughout, which we'll get into as we go through this episode. So Final Fantasy VIII began development in 1997, shortly after the release of Final Fantasy VII. And it involves much of the same team that previously had work on 7. So Yoshinori Katase uh, led the team as director. He was director in Final mm-hmm. Fantasy uh, 7. And in fact, it's a role he's filled on the series since Final Fantasy 6. Mm. Uh, Hiroyuki Ito was the main battle system designer. He's like one of the few newcomers. And by uh-huh. newcomers, I mean he wasn't involved in, I believe, uh, 6 or 7. But he had previously worked as a, uh, as a designer on the series previously. Nobuo Uematsu was the lead composer, longtime composer, one of yep. the one of the legends of the industry. Uh-huh, absolutely. And of course, we also have like uh, people like uh, uh, Tetsuya Nomura is also there as character designer as well. Now, one person who was not going to have a huge involvement in this series was the original director and creator of Final Fantasy, Hironobu Sakaguchi. Now, the reason being is because Sakaguchi had been doing two things. He's been constantly being promoted in Square because of the success of his games. Right. And so because of that, he's been increasingly taking on more like producer roles within the series. Uh, on top of that, 1997 is when he's going to make it the um, awesome decision to get intimately <laughs> involved in the development of the greatest video game movie ever made, yep. Final mm-hmm. Fantasy, The Spirits Within. A movie so good and so well-received, he would leave the company in shame after Final <laughs> Fantasy X was released. Oh, man. <laughs> So he didn't have a huge involvement in this game. He essentially was there as an executive producer, a role where he essentially like looked at the development of the game on occasion and grunted in either approval or disapproval of various things, mm-hmm. except for one incredibly major thing. <laughs> um, we're going to get to that mm-hmm. when we talk about the writing. So yeah, rounding out the team once again is our lead artist and character designer, Tetsuya Nomura. Mm-hmm. The man, and the man responsible for writing the entire story. Friend of the podcast, Katsushige Najima. Oh, oh boy. Yes. It explains a lot. Doesn't it? Oh man. So we've talked about uh, Nojima so many times on this podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, Final Fantasy 7 and Final Fantasy 10. Uh, but in short, he's a longtime scenario writer at Square Enix now currently a freelancer who is responsible for some of the highest highs and lowest lows when it comes to storytelling in these games. Yep. He's the main writer of Final Fantasy VII. Pretty big deal. He's yep. the main writer of Final Fantasy X. Pretty big deal. Yep. He is the main writer for Final Fantasy X-2 and the sequel novel. And Crisis Core. <laughs> I, don't, I don't understand. I just, I don't understand. Yeah, right? Like... He is capable of very good writing and very bad writing. But one thing I'm going to say about this man, he is not capable of being uninteresting. No, absolutely not. Everything that comes out is something. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. So we have our team. It's time to talk about how this all came together. And boy, does it sound like a nightmare. <laughs> so let's talk about just a very brief overview of how like the writing process worked. Uh, in previous games, uh, particularly Final Fantasy VII, uh, used as an example, 
While Nojima was nominally the head writer, it was more of a collaborative process between Nojima, Nomura, and Katase. Mm. They basically got together in a room, they bounced ideas off of each other, and figured out how the story and scenario would flow. Like, basically, like, Katase would come up with, like, the high-level ideas, Nomura would provide the characters and, like, what they're supposed to be like, and Nojima would kind of figure it all out from there. Right. Um, And occasionally they would give each other notes. Mm -hmm. So, it's... Now, instead... What happened here is that Katase came up with a general concept and provided notes. Nomura did the character designs based upon Katase's concept, and then that all that was just passed on to Nomura. Uh, from character from interviews with everybody involved with this game, it sounds like it was a very much more top-down approach as opposed to collaborative. Mm. Like this isn't to say that they didn't like come back to each other on occasion with things, but it right. seemed to happen a lot less than it did with Final Fantasy VII. Interesting. Yeah. Now, the problem with this is that this seemed to lead to a lack of collaboration and coordination. Mm. And to give an example, like, Nomura would take it upon himself to design, like, a lot of, like, the smaller details, such as, like, emblems and logos throughout the game, uh-huh. or would give, like, interesting and weird design flourishes to his characters. Right. And then he would pass them on to Nojima without any explanation as to why he did that. <laughs> and just have him figure things out. Hey, why Squall got a lion crest? Great question, Nojima, you gotta figure that out. <laughs> hey, why does Squall have a, a scar? Nojima, you figure that out. Wait, what? Yes, yeah. D- they didn't contextualize his scar until they were like, Nojima... Yeah, that's up to you, buddy. Oh, wow. Oh, Yeah, man. right? Yeah. This is, by the way, is gonna be a recurring thing with Nomura. Um, just like throughout mm. his entire career, where he'll just design something dumb and outlandish and have somebody else figure out how it will work. Uh, Lulu's belt dress from Final Fantasy X oh, is a really good God. example of this. I mean, okay, yeah. to be fair, no one bothered to explain that. That's just what she wears. <laughs> that was, yeah, it was really great. Yeah, nobody bothered to write a reason for that. And in cutscenes, they just always would show her from basically chest up. <laughs> uh huh. Don't, oh. don't worry about the belt skirt. Yeah. Oh, it was so good. It was so good that they did that. Now, giving some independence to interpret and fit in designs isn't necessarily like a bad thing, you know? Right. But freedom is a good thing. Mm-hmm. And, but the thing is, is that like Nomura did this with some surprisingly big things. And this includes entire backstories for characters. Right. Like, we've already touched on Squall's trademark scar, but like my Squall being the main character of this game, I should say. Mm. Uh, my personal favorite, though, is when Nomura himself, like in an interview, expressed surprise when one of his characters, an 18-year-old woman, was inexplicably written to be a teacher whose class involves students who are the same age as her. And he's like, wow, I'm really surprised it did that. And it's like, buddy, I think this problem could have been solved if you just wrote in the margins, hey, this character's 18, shouldn't be a teacher. Right. Wait, yeah, it- who was that character supposed to be? Because I know what that character looks like. Yeah, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. My, I don't understand My either. honest response to that is, what do you mean that character is 18? <laughs> yeah. She's are are you be- sure? We're talking about Quiz's trip, eh? And she's supposed to be the oldest character of the group, but she's still 18. She's, yeah, she's, she's, she's mm. like one year older than the rest of the school rest of the cast and they're like yeah. nah it's cool she's a teacher man she's, she's mature a teacher. like i can't even pin that on nojima if you showed me kistis and was like is this a teacher i'd be like maybe yeah i, I guess sure why she wears glasses that's neat <laughs> yeah yeah it's oh boy no namura man i love yeah. him oh, i man. love him but man oh man he's he's great oh he's he's gonna be doing all sorts of weird meddling throughout <laughs> this it's so good because, you know, previous to this, he really, like, he was the main character designer from Final Fantasy VII, a job he knocked out of the park. Oh, yeah. But, like, up until that job that he got, like, he was just doing, like, monster designs. Like, he didn't mm. have, like, the power or influence that he's going to gain. Right, right. <laughs> and he's he's going to start to exert it starting with this game. And it's yeah. hilarious. I love it. But, okay, so it's also weird, because, like, okay, the flow of this would be Katase makes the scenario, Nomura mm-hmm. makes the character designs, and then Nojima fleshes all of it out. Mm-hmm. Does that mean the scenario gets written without who the characters are? Like, they did establish, like, hey, these are going to be the player characters. Right. 
But as far as like what their individual roles are going to be and whatnot, beyond uh, Squall, the main character, and Renoa, the main love interest, nah, man. It's, it's, oh, okay. Yeah, no, it was Nojima. Figure it out. Wow, that yeah, that's that's something that should have absolutely been collaborated on to some degree. Like, how do absolutely. you write the story without knowing who your characters are? Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Like, with like the exception of like one character, they're. They're gonna leave a shocking amount of freedom hmm. for Nojima to like, kind of just do things, and yeah, it's it's gonna be to his jet detriment. Yeah, like this is like for like a lot of the weirder decisions that Nojima's gonna make with some of the stories. I kind of don't blame him as hard for Final Fantasy VIII after reading some of the stuff he had to do. Mm. Mm-hmm. Like he he could have probably done a better job with some of those twists, but I at yeah. least I understand. Right, right. So. Yeah, my point is that this is a weird system, right? It's going to lead to same mm-hmm. strange situations and like where some plot elements or characters are just going to be go through the weirdest possible things and it's going to seemingly come out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. And it's too bad because honestly, this game world itself is rather well put together and cohesive. Right. Which and, is what Nojima tends to do well, especially mm-hmm. well. Indeed, indeed he does. And let's talk about that a little bit. Final Fantasy VIII, much like VII, takes place in a modern world. Now, unlike Final Fantasy VII, which is like had like a diesel punk like aesthetic, you know, more of like a 1950s, 1960s sort of feel to everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, this game instead goes to the logical extreme and makes everything take place in what might as well be 1999. Mm-hmm. Uh, the world of Final Fantasy VIII would superficially not seem that out of place, at least to Western audiences, and this is deliberate albeit not for the reasons you think. Final Fantasy VIII is still a very Japanese series at this point. Like, Final Fantasy, I should right. say, is still a very Japanese series at this point. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to present a world that was foreign and alien to his Japanese audience. Hmm. So because of that, many of its locations are modeled after locales they would not be completely familiar with. Though on the flip side, it's going to end up being incredibly familiar to everyone else, or at least to Western right. audiences. Right. For example, uh, Deling City, the capital of Galbadia, is clearly influenced by Paris. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's like like a small town called Windhill that's clearly supposed to be like a quaint English town. And like, yeah, no, that makes sense. Like most Japanese people probably wouldn't be like maybe Paris. They probably be like a little familiar with. Right, but like, yeah. but like quaint English towns, not necessarily. Mm-hmm. And so this deliberate design choice, though, ends up working out pretty well in its favor. Uh, the world ends up feeling very cohesively put together, much more so than Final Fantasy VII's ever did. Like, I love Final Fantasy VII, but right. like, Midgar is so much different from like Cosmo it's, Canon. It's insane. It's like you leave Midgar and you're almost in a different game. Like, you, every city is like a new thing. Yeah, it, they are totally separate from each other. Like, it, in a way that's like absolute. It's kind of insane when you think about it. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, like... Eight sidesteps that by being like everything's modern, everything ends mm-hmm. up being cohesive. You could rent cars, it's cool. Right. You get a paycheck in this game. <laughs> so strange. Now, that being said, it works in this game's favor in another way. When a game does throw out fantastical elements, they stick out rather prominently. Mm-hmm. But but in a way that I think ultimately works for this game. Yeah. Part of the established canon in Final Fantasy VIII is that magic is very much a real thing in the hands of a select few, the sorceresses. Uh, Sorceresses are incredibly powerful beings who have unparalleled control over the elements and in some case time and space. While normal everyday society has figured out a way to use magic via unnatural means and in limited quantities, sorceresses don't have that limitation. And so because of that, these seem very unnatural as a result. And like their character designs all over the place too. Mm Like, they very much look like they come from, like, a traditional fantasy setting. Yeah. Uh, and that works. Mm-hmm. And, like, there are plenty of elements like that throughout the game. The yeah. future city of Esther is this, like, like, really, really crazy. Like, the weird giant drill prison you have to escape from is very, very memorable. Mm. There are elements that in a lesser story would stick out and simply clash, but here the the fact that they do clash works in the game's favor because this stuff is supposed to be weird. Right. And in fact, I think the the element of the sorceresses is, is maybe the most influential uh part of Final Fantasy VIII on the entire series, because that's a theme that they would sort of carry forward. 
Mm. Uh, especially projecting it onto summoners in Final Fantasy nine, ten, yeah. uh, sixteen, even uses a similar element like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even um, fifteen with the main love interest is like oh, a yeah. little bit there too. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, it is a very influential concept that they're going to come up with and yeah. iterate and on so often. Becomes kind of so influential that when thirteen just sort of throws out summon beasts for no reason that everyone has, you're like, that's weird now. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I guess this one's just a car. Mm-hmm. Why not? Everyone sure. was car. Everyone was car summoned. So this clashing aesthetic was part of the overall concept of the game. And the team looked back on what they did with Final Fantasy VII, and they wa- decided that they wanted to do two broad things with this clashing concept. They wanted to ha- have a strong combination of fantasy and realism, which is something we just highlighted a mm-hmm. little bit. Uh, not only with uh, the elements that we also mentioned, but the fact that you could, let's get rent a car that could run out of fuel. You can buy <laughs> fuel for your car. <laughs> but, and as contrast with the fact that there's like monsters and magic all over the place. Right. The second thing is that they recognized that Final Fantasy VII was a very dark and dystopian sort of game. Mm-hmm. Everything was dirty, falling apart, like just bootstrapped together. Mm-hmm. And in general, this game gave a feeling of it being kind of a downer in some ways. Right. The team decided to take the complete opposite tack with this, instead have this game be much lighter in comparison. And I mean this a little literally, too. Like, the mm-hmm. game is generally just brighter and more colorful overall. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, the streets of the various cities are clean without a speck of trash in sight. Like, even destroyed structures somehow seem weirdly untouched in a way that doesn't quite make sense. Yeah. And the others that make this game metaphorically light. Mm-hmm. Alex, this is a game about love. Yeah, it sure is. It sure is, and boy, they're gonna they're gonna try hard with that one. More more than that, it's a game about like teen love, like yeah, very pure and passionate love. Oh God, absolutely! And if you just will two people to be together, they absolutely they will. will. You will melt the steely loner's heart. <laughs> oh my God! You I just got to be this quirky. He's got to be quirky. You got to be the absolutely quirkiest thing. But not that quirky one. This quirky one. Yeah, that quirky one. So, this is where we're going to circle back real quick to uh, Nojima. Mm. So, while Kazushige Nojima had a basic outline of what he was going to happen in the game, he was being pretty consistently bombarded by requests from the team to include and exclude little elements here and there. Mm-hmm. Now, Nojima doesn't quite remember all these things, but he does remember one thing. Because there was one voice he could not ignore. Uh, and that voice was executive producer Hironobu Sakaguchi. Now, according to an interview Nomura gave, he said that Sakaguchi just sort of came in one day and was like, hey, the theme of Final Fantasy VIII is love. And right. He was kind of ignored at first, but apparently that just, he kept repeating it enough that occasionally it just sort of just stuck and became the central focus of the game story. Now, for anyone following, following like the Final Fantasy series up to this point, this actually isn't a huge surprise. Hmm. Well, love stories are pre- present throughout the series. Um, sure. Final Fantasy IV had the Cecil, Rosa, Cain love triangle. Final Fantasy VI had a somewhat forbidden love of Celis and Locke, uh, alongside Terra herself trying to understand what it means to love and be loved. Like, mm-hmm. they kind of hit it from all sorts of different angles. Mm-hmm. But, of course, there's one game that stood above them all, and that was the love triangle of Tifa, Cloud, and Aerith in Final Fantasy VII. Yeah. Uh, this love triangle, despite not necessarily being the central focus of the game, helped drive the entire thing in terms of popularity. Because there were a ton of schoolyard arguments between Tifa and Arathans that have been a, like a lasting one. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, when a 7 remake came out, these arguments popped up again in a way oh, yeah. that was incredibly funny. Oh yeah, it is now the current year and we are arguing about Tifa, Aerith, and Ray or Asuka once again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that one came back too. That's kind <laughs> <Yep>. of funny. <laughs> Meanwhile, in the corners, a couple of Jesse sickos just hanging on out. It's great. Yeah, just, mm. <laughs> mm. yeah it, it's it's hard to overstate how important this was to the game, right? Right. So it makes perfect sense, and this is one of the elements that clearly influenced Final Fantasy VIII. That was brought forward from Sakaguchi. Who was like, "Hey, this should be about love." What doesn't make sense, though, but fits into how this game is developed, is that he didn't quite explain how it fit in or what he meant by that. Right. Like, what kind of love? Yeah, Nojima asked that same question when he Hmm. said, quote, 
for me, when I hear that, it's like, what do you mean? What kind of love? End quote. <laughs> Valid question. Yeah. Uh, Nojima eventually came to the conclusion he meant, he must have meant it filtered into everything about the story. Ugh. Which, yeah, there's going to be a lot of allusions to like all sorts of love throughout this, from sisterly love to brotherly love to love love, mm-hmm. uh, romantic love. Like, it's it's all going to be throughout this. Because uh, he, he's going to go on to detail how it's difficult to keep up this theme throughout the game. Mm. Uh, as an aside, this interview of Nojima, by the way, is great. Because apparently he would just get like, a, once again, he'd get a bunch of weird suggestions in direction all the time. Right. Like, but like, he would come up with the idea that Nojima's like the key person who came up with the idea that this is going to take place in like a military boarding school. <laughs> right? Mm, okay. Which I think is no, it's it's a it's an interesting it's a, setting. It's I an interesting it's, setting. It's neat. I like it. Yeah. yeah. But but no, I laugh because then you're told, okay, make it about love now. Mm. <laughs> yeah, actually. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. I didn't really make the setting for that theme, but uh, okay. I'll figure it out, I guess. But like, what's funny about it is that like Nojima clearly had no idea what to do with it because like mm-hmm. at one point some team members went to study college campuses. Mm. And like they came back to present him with their notes, and he was like, "What the hell is this?" <laughs> <laughs> like he's like, "This this wasn't useful to me at all." I'm like, oh, oh, buddy, <laughs> oh boy, yeah. So it's really good. And, and in the end, the theme of love was included in nearly aspect of the game's presentation, and that includes right down to the inclusion of a fully voiced love song called "Eyes on Me." I, the first time a fully voiced anything was in Final Fantasy. Mm. Oh yeah, that's true. So I guess that's the second influential element yeah totally yeah um uh uimatsu actually did the composition for that uh it was arranged by a another composer at square uh shiro hamaguchi mm-hmm. and it was actually performed by hong kong singer fei wong uh, somebody who's probably not particularly well known over here but she's an incredibly huge star in east asia like mm-hmm. they they mm-hmm. went out and got a big name for this is what yep. i'm trying to say which they would continue to do they would indeed now, in order for this to now, in order to have this love story, you need to have compelling characters, Alex. Yep. Yeah. Not, that helps. It does help. Not only your romantic leads, but a competent supporting cast to help flesh out the world. Mm-hmm. And this task fell to maybe one of the best in the business at doing exactly that. Tetsuya Nomura. Nomura is another person who we've talked to death on this podcast, but in short, he was the main character designer for Final Fantasy VII, a job that once again he did great at. Yep. And he would later go on and design and create the Kingdom Hearts series before becoming the weird god king of uh, Square Enix. Yep. Uh, he is often wrongly pointed to for all of Square Enix's failures and somewhat <laughs> rarely gets credit for their wins. Yep. Not to say he hasn't messed a few things up. I'm just saying he sometimes is painted as a little bit more of a villain than he actually is. Yeah, that's that's fair. Yeah, which once again, if you decide to, if you're going to be basically become the face of, you know, the thing. Right, it's gonna happen. Perhaps, yeah, that's gonna happen. But at the same time, if he got to do everything that he wanted to do, uh, Final Fantasy Versus 13 would have come out. <laughs> oh god, it would have. It would have. I mean, once again, he seems like he's trying to do that with the Kingdom he's Hearts trying, DLC. He's <laughs> trying very hard to this day. Yeah, oh boy. That man loves that idea. And he sure good does. on him. Yeah, good on I, him. I hope he gets to release it one day. Like the Snyder cut of Final Ugh. Fantasy. So before all that, though, he was the character designer for Final Fantasy VIII, and oddly enough, his work on this game would start all the way back in 1994, when he first sketched out Sorceress Idea, one of the central characters of Final Fantasy VIII. Mm. And to be fair, a hell of a character design. Yeah, I love Idea. Mm-hmm. Maybe the one character in this entire series that I'm okay with, <laughs> or this game, I should say. Now, Katasi apparently took notice of this sketch in 1997, and it's from here that the idea of realism versus fantasy came about as a theme of this game. It, it should mm. be noted that Katasi is the one who put forward that theme. Now, in order to help achieve this, Nomura separated the two. The majority of the characters, outside of the sorceresses, were going to have designs that were going to be realistic, right? We, mm-hmm. we kind of already detailed this a little bit. Like, clothing was going to be a little bit more outlandish, but it, it was still going to be, like, out, not outside the realm of possibility in the late 90s. Uh-huh. Uh, this once again even extended to the main cast of characters. While the main character, Squall Leonhart, 
uh, does have some distinct features about him, such as his fur coat and scar. His overall look is a bit more tame than, say, Cloud from Final Fantasy VII, well, with this incredibly spiky hair and oversized mm-hmm. sword. Uh, it should be noted that Squall clearly is very influenced by Cloud. Yeah. Uh, he, they're both... Cloud's not nearly this brooding. Like he, he's going to get typecasted. Typecast is a weird way to say about a fictional character. Right, he's going to yeah. be written that way, I should say. Squall um, will make Cloud broodier in, in like, memory. Yeah, I think that's really what Squall does. Because Cloud is Cloud is a many things, but yes. he's not just a like brooding character. Right. Uh, and of course, you know, his weird sword, the gun blade, is very similar to Cloud's buster sword in terms of just being kind of a weird thing. Mm-hmm. Like, it's it's very clear that they, they are parallels to each other. Right. Uh, but that being said, like, Squall's, like, love interest, Renoa, had, like, much of the same treatment applied to her in the sense of being, like, more down to earth. Uh, now... This is going to be very interesting in the sense that Nomura realized that with like 3D pre-rendered graphics reaching like higher and higher levels of fidelity, mm-hmm. he's like, people are going to get kind of horny about this. <laughs> and he felt that developers were going to just use this to make their characters, in his words, quote, too beautiful and overshadow their personalities, end quote. Because of this, a lot of her features were intentionally softened. The idea is that they wanted to make her more cute and have her personality take over instead. Boy, are they going to try real hard with Renoa <laughs> in this game. Uh, you, what a, what a personality, though. She is going to have a personality. It's this still, is going to be accurate. It's there. I would argue she's going to have the most personality. Fair. Now, however, for everything else, he wanted to be full-on fantasy. The monsters and enemy designs are deliberately out there, and this includes mm. like humanoid characters. Like, Humanoid enemies that you fight are going to look rather strange. Like the right. spindly Esser soldiers, for instance, are, mm-hmm. are going to be look really, really strange. Um, or in like some of the like other human characters are just going to have like anachronistic elements to them. Uh, the Galbadian soldiers, for instance, have uniforms that look very... I, I should say like they look similar to how the uniforms look in real life, but they're not as out of place as you would think. Right. But they also use swords rather than guns. Mm. Like, And this even includes the summons that are present in this game. And we got to talk about the summons. Yeah. Because these are a big, big part. So summons, large creatures that a character could, well, summon to the battlefield had been something that had been present since Final Fantasy III, back on the NES or Famicom when it originally came out. Mm -hmm. Early on, the idea that characters could summon mythical creatures was something that the developers of Final Fantasy felt had a lot of promise. Like it almost immediately factored into the plots of Final Fantasy IV and VI. Mm-hmm. Uh, sticks incredibly heavily mm. uh, with and with the transition of 3d graphics in final fantasy 7 they became more than possible plot points but rather a graphical spectacle like everyone remembers like um bahamut zero well people who play final fantasy 7 remember like bahamut zero's like summon animation right like shooting the giant orbital laser down and like all sorts of like cool stuff that happened in that yeah it's like, awesome yeah they were incredibly cool and with that They said, man, yeah, these things are incredibly cool. What if we made them a plot point rather than a graphical spectacle Mm -hmm. and we just combined the two and make them a central focus of the plot? And so Final Fantasy VIII married the two ideas with the Guardian forces. Summons that not only factored into the story, but had even more elaborate attacking cutscenes than those in Final Fantasy VII that I would honestly argue still actually look pretty decent to this day. Mm. Now... With these magical creatures, Nomura wanted to make sure they heavily tapped into the fantasy theme they were going for. This meant things such as, like, previously featured humanoid summons such as Rama was, like, completely excised from the game. Hmm. Uh, like, instead, like, like things like such as, like, Quetzalcoatl were included to, like, kind of fill out, like, that thunder sort of niche. Right. Um, summons that, other summons that were, like, humanoid previously, such as, like, Siren, were given, like, basically, like, more, like, paw-like hands and feet. Like, they were meant to be deliberately weird. Right. With these distinct bits of, of realism versus fantasy, Nomura did his best to combine them into a cohesive whole. This, alongside gameplay elements such as GF system, and the ability to draw and use magic for enemies also played a role in fusing these two opposing concepts. I- I'm not completely sure it worked out as they intended, because sometimes they get a little bit too weird. Stuff like the Shumi and Norg and whatnot, and mm. Galbadian soldiers just using up swords, like does sometimes come off as a little bit, a little bit too weird at times. A little bit takes you a little bit too out of them. Right. But I think for the most part it works. 
Now, all of this had to be supported by graphics and cutscenes capable of bringing all these elements to life. Previously in Final Fantasy VII, Square really didn't have a whole lot of experience working with 3D graphics mm-hmm. or any of the other advanced bells and whistles that consoles such as the PlayStation had to offer. Because of this, Final Fantasy VII is a very basic looking game. Yes. Uh, often they use like colored polygons to depict things such as clothes and hair, like mm-hmm. textures were barely present. Uh, it makes the game look incredibly old and it, it looked incredibly old just years after it came out. Right. Like eight blows out of the water. Now, Square by this point, uh, by 1999, had mastered what the PlayStation could do, uh, to the point that they were kind of unquestionably the leaders in pushing the system to its limits. Like, it's basically them mm-hmm. and Naughty Dog. Right. It's, however, going to come with one of the... cause them to make one of the decisions that's going to be the biggest visual design break with Final Fantasy tradition we've seen this series this far. And it's actually going to be a lasting influence that it's going to have on the entire series. In nearly every Final Fantasy game, with the exception of Final Fantasy VI, each game had two distinct looks for the player character. Uh, The field character, which is what appears in Towns and Dungeons, was a small squat character with minimal Mm -hmm. fidelity. And when he entered the battle, he had a more visually interesting sprite, usually larger, more detailed, what have you. And this concept would continue mostly interrupted. Final Fantasy VI is going to mess with this a little bit. Uh, But Mm -hmm. it would even survive the transition to 3D. Final Fantasy VII, like, when you're in the field, you have very small squad characters, and then you have more realistically proportioned characters that aren't named Barrett uh, <laughs> in the battles. Right. And, like, they still, like, would, like, be visually cohesive with one another, but it was just something they sort of did. Mm-hmm. I, with Final Fantasy VIII, they're going to want these characters to look as realistic as possible for the technology of the day, and I think it ends up actually working to his detriment. And the character design of Final Fantasy VIII is just not quite as interesting or visually distinct with a resolution mm-hmm. that's capable of, like, that system. From far away, they don't have really distinct sil- silhouettes. Final Fantasy VII, like, the characters in that game, you get a very good idea of who they are and what their deal is. Right. Like, you get the idea of that Cloud is supposed to be, like, kind of like a badass mercenary from his look. Mm-hmm. You, get, you get the idea that, you know, Barrett is an incredibly tough person from the way he looks. Like... Aerith is a bit more of a softer character from the way she looks. You don't quite get that with the character designs of Final Fantasy VIII because they're meant to look more like normal people, which they right. they succeed in that. Mm-hmm. But it makes them a little bit more forgetful. Like, see, even somebody like Squall, who has much more out there elements, he looks very, very normal compared to a lot of other characters. And that is exactly how they're going to do the graphics and the character design kind of going forward. They're eventually going to get back to like making characters with that are much more distinct. Like, uh, Tidus and Yuna from Final Fantasy X are definitely very distinct looking characters. Right. Yeah. I I think a big issue with that was, as you said, this was sort of the first time they were trying to do it. Yeah. So it was them sort of figuring out what their limits and capabilities, especially with this hardware, are. Mm. And like it, it was almost trying to do something that the PlayStation wasn't really designed to do. Yeah. They got ambitious. They sure did. And, like, the the PlayStation was designed with, like, 3D rendering and 3D modeling in mind. Hmm. But it's still an extremely, by modern standards at least, like, low-fidelity graphics output. Mm -hmm. And so it can do 3D models, but shoving a lot of detail onto those models is hard yeah and having that come across like especially on on crt monitors at the time like developers and artists have gotten very used to doing 2d sprites and basic 3d models for to read well on crts Mm -hmm. um but throwing all that detail into crt pixels is doesn't come across nearly as well yeah it absolutely does not and the the resolution of the PlayStation, like it's outputting resolution of like, I think it was like 320 by 240 pixels. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, it, it does it zero favors. Right. Yeah. Um, sorry, that said, I I think it's kind of hard to over to overstate what this looked like at the time. Mm. To like go from like the way I think about it is even if the art doesn't read as cleanly. From a sheer technical achievement standpoint, Final Fantasy VIII 
kind of is as incredible as Final Fantasy VII was. Oh, yeah. And to do that without even a hardware jump is kind of amazing. It is an amazing jump in fidelity and of like what the capabilities of 3D graphics were. Like, yeah. Like, it is a real proof of concept of like, no, listen, this is truly the future. And look, yeah. look at the weird stuff we can do. Mm-hmm. Like, and something that Square's going to bear out many times with like games like Chrono Cross and whatnot. Like, mm, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like, it's, yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing. And yeah, it's, yeah, when I like, I think I said like at the start of this that like Final Fantasy VIII is like sneakily one of the most influential games of the series. It's stuff mm-hmm. like this, yeah, like absolutely. stuff that stuff that they they sort of fail at at like the start, like with this game. Mm. But it's mm-hmm. going to clearly dictate what they're going to do, and it's also going to clearly dictate what other games are going to do. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like this is a uh, like I I I might be saying like the character designs like don't read particularly well, but boys, is the rest of the game the rest mm-hmm. of the game still looks great. Yeah. So now that we have the characters, the concept, the visual design, and even the music, it's time to circle back and finish this up with the writing. Just really dig deep into it. Once again, after Kazushige Nojima got all the input from Katase and the characters and other visual motifs from Nomura, set about writing it. Now, for Final Fantasy VIII, he wanted to make it a game that takes place largely in the present. Now, what I mean by that is not necessarily like taking place in the present as in like 1999 when this game came out. Mm-hmm. But I mean is that he wanted the, like, the game's story in progression to take place in a present. Final Fantasy VII had a very heavy reliance on, like, quick flashbacks, or sometimes mm-hmm. prolonged mm-hmm. flashbacks, to explain mm-hmm. motivations and crucial plot elements. Right. Uh, no, Nojima didn't want that. Mm. He wanted every, all the action to basically take place while you were in direct control of the game. Now, there are going to still be extended, I guess you could call them flashbacks, but you're still going to be in direct control of what's going on there. He wanted to always be grounded in player control. And so that's what I mean by he wants the game Mm -hmm. to be grounded in the present. Now, as to help achieve that, as part of his initial outline, uh, he wanted the game to have more of a school days feel to this. So that's where the military academy and people Mm -hmm. living their everyday lives comes from. Now, it's a setting that, while it's not quite as strong as Midgar was in Final Fantasy VII, I still think Balam Garden, the first area you see, is still pretty darn memorable. It's pretty strong. And it's complete opposite of what Midgar looks like, a city that's clearly dirty and falling apart. Balam Garden is clearly designed after, you know, like you see like those like memes of like, hey, man, if this happened, this is what the future would look like. Right. Super futuristic city, super clean. Mm-hmm. That is exactly what Balam Garden looks like. Like it's absolutely, absolutely memorable in that sense. Now, for determining the different characters' roles and their personalities, once again, Najiba had a shocking amount of leeway, uh, including things, once again, such as Squall and his main rival, Seifer's scars and what they represented, were left to Najima to figure out. Now, this isn't to say that everything was completely on Najima. He did consult Nomura on occasion with various characters in order to get a better idea of their personalities. Something that, as he did, Nomura started to insert himself more and more, which prompted Najima to kind of do things behind his back. <laughs> as, this, as this quote um, from Najima highlights, quote, I talked a lot with Nomura about the tone of the characters and their personalities, but I was the one writing the dialogue, and in the end, I had the final decision. So I added a lot of things on my own, and aside from Squall and Laguna, most of my decisions were sort of approved ex post facto. Some things were like, I don't want Nomura to see this, he laughs. Nomura was constantly giving me his opinion about Renoa, Squall's main love interest. She should be like this, she should do that, etc. He practically mm-hmm. created a Renoa dictionary to refer to. <laughs> so yeah, he would just constantly come back and be like, no, 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 Renoa doesn't do this. She does this. <laughs> uh, okay. Mm, yeah. And eventually, Najima just started to ignore him, which is pretty great. That That is pretty good. Yeah. Mm. So... Regardless of this interference, though, Najima had a story in mind and went about writing it. Going back to the concept of keeping things in the present, in the sense of leaving, once again, players in control of the game's story, uh, he decided to center it around two people. In the present, like the actual present, Squall Leonhardt. And then in the past, an older man by the name of Laguna Lore. Alex, I am so excited to talk about Laguna when we get to him. I've heard the name and I know nothing about him. Laguna is the greatest character in video games. When I said that Adea, Adea was the only good character in this game, I lied. 
Yeah. There the are three. Other. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's three other good characters in this game. And, we're okay. gonna be, and you get precious scant time with them. <laughs> mm. Now, how this game was going to work initially is that while Squall's story once again takes place in the present, when things needed to be explained about the state of the world, how it came to be and whatnot, or some other major events, the game would shift to Laguna and his buddies as they witnessed whatever thing it was that Squall was now having to deal with. And this is largely how it works out in the game, but the original idea was that it was supposed to be split evenly. 50 mm. on Squall, 50 on Laguna. Interesting. Yeah, interesting little concept. Sadly, it became pretty clear early on that this wasn't going to work out. Like, they decided it would be a stronger story if they had to focus on just one character as opposed to both. Right. And Squall's going to win out on this one. And I, I think it is the right decision. I would love more Laguna, but mm -hmm. it probably is the proper amount of Laguna. Yeah. It's it's definitely like an interesting concept to have like a 50-50 dual story of past and present. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. I, I think there are some games that have done that, too. Yeah. But yeah, yeah that's, that was my thought. Uh -huh. Yeah, it, it's, you're right. It's probably better this way. Yeah, it, it probably is. It probably or, or at is. least simpler. Certainly simpler, yeah. It, you know, she was already going to have a lot to work with. Yeah. So, for, speaking of, we should talk a little bit about Squall, at least a bit. We're probably going to get a little bit more to him when we talk about the actual plot of this, but mm. for now, Squall, our 17-year-old brooding prodigy of a soldier, Nojima, uh, he wanted to have him be a complete break from Cloud himself. And what I mean by that is while they share, share some similar like personality traits, mm -hmm. like how they're written is quite a bit different. A lot of what Cloud is and what he's going on through internally was intentionally left as a mystery, with it later being revealed trip feet style as the game went on. And eventually right. there's a you know the big reveal that happens later in the game. Mm -hmm. There was a feeling this made it harder for the player to immersively get into the character. And so what Nojima did was try to remove any ambiguity. <laughs> Throughout the game, Alex, you basically get to read Squall's thoughts. And whenever a tense situation pops up, Squall's inner thoughts will be communicated to the player. Right. And this happens incredibly frequently throughout the game. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a very unique thing. Um, uh, it's like throughout the Final Fantasy series, it's like you don't really see this a whole lot. Like, really, you only got, like, Titus from Final Fantasy X doing anything remotely similar. Right. And that's because that game is told in flashback. So, uh -huh. Like, once you finally get up to that point, it, that stops. Yep. Uh, so, like, seeing Squall do this does lead to some of the more unintentionally hilarious parts of the game. Because <laughs> uh, while Squall tries to be, like, a professional, he is definitely a teenager on the inside. Uh-huh. And so a lot of his lashing out happens in his thoughts, which is pretty great. But with all that set up, all that put together, they made the game, and it would be released on February 11th, 1999 in Japan, and September 9th, 1999 in North America. And I think it would come out in October everywhere else. With that, we now have our basis for the plot. And Alex, next time, we're going to go over that plot. That I'm was, excited. As we jump into the nonsense, and you should be excited. Oh my god, because <laughs> oh, it's so much boy. nonsense. Oh um, man. Final Fantasy VIII. Alex, how are you feeling? I'm I I excited. Yes. All I can say is excited. I'm man. <laughs> oh yeah, it's gonna be good, man. It's gonna be good. I. It is not gonna be a very cohesive story. No. But it's gonna be a fun one. I know there's time travel in there, so I'm like, whatever, man. I hope you are happy to learn about time compression, spelled with a K, by the way. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there's a character who speaks in Mortal Kombat like we go. Oh, boy. But yeah, we're going to be tackling that next time. But in the meantime, if you want to see more episodes like this, you should go to ftp.podbeat.com or search for Fallen Through Plot Holes on your podcast service of choice. Also, we're going to actually have a website. I'm, gonna, I'm actually going to go into Squarespace and put together a website so we actually have a cohesive place to put this at since I refuse to use Twitter anymore. Uh, <laughs> This is going to be the point where I insert this in post-production and it doesn't sound weird at all. Nice. But uh, that's, that's going to happen then. That's going to happen then. It's going to be great. But uh, in the meantime, we'll see you all next week as we check out the plot of Final Fantasy VIII. Take care, everybody. Take care.